we're going to have Tim come and speak to us in a second, but before that, I'm just going to do the reading. So the reading's going to come up on the screen, uh, and it's from Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 27. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit, uh, commit uh, adultery, not. <laughs> but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And it is, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow, Tim. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pray for you to start you. with. <laughs> uh, so, Lord, I just pray that you come anoint him. I pray you bless his lips and that your words would pass through him, and he speaks to us now. Amen. Amen. Cool. Good to be here. When the, uh, when the sermon series kind of gets announced, there's always that sense of excitement as to what it's going to be. And it, the Sermon on the Mount, it's quite a biggie. It's a good one to get under your belt. Um, then it comes to kind of, if you like, picking the lots. And do you reckon I got the, the long straw or the short straw? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It feels a little bit like the rugby. It feels like it's, you know, it was quite a breezy encounter, just kind of resting of this, this passage this week. But do you know what? At the same time, it feels like quite a privilege actually to speak into this space. You know, when I actually have no, well, nothing really to bring myself, I realize that all we ever have is Jesus Christ. You know, we stand here at the foot of the cross. moved by the overwhelming sense of redeeming love, you know, of one who came into this world because he wanted to share the love of a father, the love of a God that is real, that is tangible, that knows his children mess up, but says it is okay. That like any dad, you know, we know there's a consequence for our actions. But Jesus came, if you like, to stand in our place. So when we, when we encounter these tricky passages, we do it with a sense that actually God's love has gone before. We have a compassionate God. One who we celebrate and we sing to and we praise. Because he is mighty. Because he is righteous. Because he is merciful. You know, tonight we're going to touch on some subjects. We're going to talk about the biggies. We're going to talk about lust, adultery, and divorce. But we're going to do it by stepping into the story of Jesus. This is not just a one-off passage. You know, we encountered God 2,000 years ago for his son, Jesus Christ. We step into that story. We participate in the narrative. We believe in a compassionate God. To give you an idea of just the scale of the problem when it comes to divorce, I've got some vital uh, statistics. Hopefully they're going to pop on the screen. The first one is that you know, roughly it's estimated that 40% of marriages are expected to end in divorce. 
That's a hugely scary statistic. You know, we live in a consumerist world, and unfortunately, we consume relationships. You know, the next one says the average length of a marriage before divorce is about 12.2 years. I've been married 14 years. Actually, that's a little bit of a worrying statistic. You know, I think we can maybe get to the seven-year itch and think we're all right. But actually, like a good car or like a, like a house, we have to keep working at it. We have to keep restoring it. As soon as we think we've got it right, we've probably got it wrong. We need to recognize that actually we have to work at things. We all need an MOT. We all need a service. We do life in community, not on our own. Yeah, there was 101,000 or slightly more divorces in 2017. You know, we've talk, we're talking about adultery tonight. Actually, only about 14% of those recorded kind of divorces are through because of, because of adultery. You know, unreasonable behavior is the number one factor. So hopefully that sets the scene. But before we talk about kind of adultery, which is really associated with marriage, and we talk about divorce, which is the destruction of marriage, I think it would be helpful if we talked about relationship. Actually, God's design for you and I, for how we're supposed to live out relationship. So that's where we're going to start. And I want to start by talking about singleness. And I deliberately put it first. Because I think too often we make the mistake to think that singleness is like a, it's like a holding place. It's like the ground we're waiting for something better to happen. That is not true. You know, Jesus is the perfect example of life to the full, the most fulfilled life that we'll ever know, we'll ever see, and we'll ever read about. He was not in a sexual relationship. Culture today sort of tells us that we have to have sexual encounters to be fulfilled. I do not believe that is true. You know, Jesus said that marriage actually is temporary. You know, he had his eyes fixed on something that is more than our kind of earthly existence. Paul, who went after him, he said that actually it is better, if you can, to not get married. It is better to not be in a sexual relationship if you can bear it. Because he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. He wanted no distractions between him and God. You know, singleness is good. It is not a lesser thing. I feel challenged. And I think we as a church have to reimagine what it is to be family, what it is to be to support those who are single, to love them, to do family well with them. And then we have marriage. You know, we, we go into the kind of the Genesis story. You know, God made man and woman. And at this point, I want to flag that I'm not going to touch on kind of same-sex attraction tonight. I apologize for that. I just do not have the space or the time, and it's not the right platform tonight. But we will be looking at it later next year. But back to marriage. You know, God made man and woman, if they so choose, to come together, to be one flesh, to love and to hold, to cherish. Malachi 2.14 says that when man and woman come together, they come together in a covenant relationship before God, promises made together. Not a contractual relationship. It's not about like a 50-50 kind of half of me, half of you. 
No, it's about giving all that we are in sickness and health. You know, for the for all, you know, for all the time that we have. It's a lifelong commitment. You know, it's why two of the fruits of the Spirit, one is faithfulness and one is self-control. It's about lifelong commitment. I think we, well, it's really hard, isn't it, with kind of the cultural norms to think about how to do relationship. You know, I love the picture of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, where Jesus is gathered with the 12. You know, Jesus recognized that he had physical and emotional needs, that he couldn't live life on his own. He was made to be in relationship with others. And so he chose the 12. He said, come follow me. Let's do life together. And then there was the free, the free who he kind of took into the deep place with God for those special encounters. And then there was the one, the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus is said to have loved, again, not in a sexual way, but in a deep, intimate, vulnerable way. And again, I think one of our challenges today is we've lost what it means to really do close relationship. You know, culturally then, it was okay to be slightly more tactile than we are today. You know, we've kind of got standoff or too much. We've lost that kind of in-between. You know, Jesus knew what it was to hold the tension, to hold the balance in relationship. And what of sex? Well, sex is not a taboo. God designed it. It's good. It's a joyful thing. You know, the Song of Songs tells of this kind of erotic narrative. But it's designed for marriage. You know, we've read, or not read, but we've, we've heard the last few weeks that we're called to be salt and life. We're called to live distinct lives. We're called almost to fight against the tide, to fight against the current. You know, I don't think society's really changed that much from the 60s through to today. You know, it's been common, hasn't it, to be in sexual encounters, multiple encounters. You know, in Jesus' day, polygamy was, was the norm. But actually, Jesus calls us to something slightly different. He calls us to a covenanted relationship with another person, to a faithful and obedient relationship. And within that intimacy, within that sacred place, he designed the gift of sex. So I say that, you know, singleness is good. Sex is good within marriage, and marriage is good. Now it's time to, to jump into the Sermon on the Mount. And we find the first part, don't we? Jesus says, but it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman, or we could add man, lustfully, commits adultery with her or with him in their hearts. Remember, Jesus is speaking to, to a Jewish audience, and in doing so, he steps back in time. He steps into the shoes of Moses. We're back into Exodus, Exodus 2.14, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery is basically sexual promiscuity. It's where someone who is married sleeps with another person. You know, it was punishable by death 
in Moses' day. Jesus is not displacing that rule, but he's recognizing that actually there were many loopholes at that time, that it wasn't quite cutting. So Jesus says, but I say to you, he wants to take it deeper. He wants to get back to the heart of what he meant, of what God meant, of what covenanted relationship was about. You know, just as anger leads to murder, Jesus basically says lust leads to adultery and adultery leads to destruction. And I want to take us back in time even further to 1 Samuel, the story of David, just as an example of how lust just leads to a whole load of mess. You know, David is on his balcony, his palatial suite, and he looks out and he sees a naked lady bathing in the water. He sees, he wants, he imagines, and he walks towards it. And he gets one of his servants and he says, bring this lady to me. Bathsheba is her name. And she comes. And basically he treats her like an object of his desire. And he sleeps with her. And then he sends her out. And a few weeks later, perhaps a few months, word comes back to David. She says that she's pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. What am I going to do? Suddenly David falls into this cycle of deceit. And he goes, I know, I'll get her husband back. So he sends for Uriah, who's fighting on the front line. And he brings him into the palace. And he says, hello, good and faithful soldier. Go, go back to your wife, have some time off, enjoy yourself. Now Uriah is a faithful soldier. He recognizes that he's got kind of unique, I don't know, a unique reward. Because his troops can't sleep with their wives or go home, he decides to sleep outside of his house. And so word comes back to David that he's not slept with his wife. And so David decides to call him back in and he plies him with alcohol to get him drunk and he sends him away again, hoping that he'll go and have a good time. But he remains faithful and he sleeps outside his house. And so again, his servants come back and tell him the news. And David is like, what am I going to do? And he thinks, I know. And he pens a letter to the commander-in-chief of the the soldiers. And he sends Uriah back to the front line And the commander reads the letter, which basically says, put Uriah right in the most dangerous place and back away. And so Uriah is killed. And then David takes Bathsheba into his household, and she becomes his wife. There's a verse in Job which says, the eye of the adulterer waits for darkness. He thinks no one will see him, so he'll keep his face concealed. But you see, David had a problem because God did see. David could not conceal from God what he had done. And so David, sorry, not David, God sends a prophet. He sends a prophet, Nathan, to come and see David. And Nathan comes and he tells him a story about someone who has done wrong. And David suddenly feels a deep sense of conviction that he is the one in the story. And so he falls prostrate on the floor and he begs God for mercy. He pleads for forgiveness. And David says, God will forgive, but it's going to come at a price. Your son is going to die. This the son born out of this illegitimate relationship, dies on the seventh day. David is reconciled by a huge price. 
How fortunate are we that Jesus has come to pay the price for us. Lust leads to adultery. Adultery just destroys things. Jesus suggests some fairly extreme action. He says if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty scary and extreme stuff, isn't it? Now, Jesus is not talking literally. He's talking figuratively. But the message is clear. There are consequences. This is serious stuff. You know, the eye is where it all begins. We see, we want, we walk towards, we imagine Lust leads to adultery. You know, as I was reading around this topic, um, I read this lovely little kind of line which says, you know, we often think of sin like a bowl of strawberries and cream, something quite tasty, something that we can hold quite safely, when actually it's like a rattlesnake. It's pretty scary, and it has a flipping nasty bite. But we've kind of got a distortion going on. Yeah, temptation has always been there. It always will be there. It is not wrong to find someone else attractive. That's just human nature. It's what we do with those thoughts. It's what we do that leads us into, into problems. You know, we're called to turn away from temptation, not to walk towards it. You know, we live in a time, in a digital age, where temptation has just got more and more. You know, we're a click away from pornography. Worse than that, I think, is that actually it's invaded our space further than that. It's invaded what we now would call like mainstream media. It's pretty hard, I think, to watch a box set or to watch a drama without having to encounter pretty strong images. Stuff that is definitely not good for us. You know, Jesus says, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We kid ourselves and we think that we can just manage it, we can deal with it, we can process it, we can compartmentalize it. Thank you, Steve. Well, there we go. Yeah, I've definitely been guilty of that. Yeah, we can pray for self-control, we can pray for the Spirit to help us, but we need to be wise as well. We want, we see, we imagine, we walk towards it. You know, some of us, we're talking honestly, some of us would be sexually aroused through sight, through visual images. Some of us, through tactile behavior, through touch. Whatever it is for you, just be wary, be wise. You know, Jesus talks, talks about hell. And again, it's not, not necessarily a literal thing, but we do need to take seriously that one day we'll come before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. It's not meant to be a light story. This is Jesus 
who's giving us just a gentle nudge in the right direction to follow him, both in the light and the dark. He seeks a righteous heart. You know, not just our actions here together, but when we're back in our private space, all alone, like David on the balcony, what are we going to do? God seeks a righteous heart. But there is hope. You know, the gospel is full of encounters of where Jesus meets someone who's messed up. We all mess up, right? We sing about it. We sing about how we're unwell when we come back to Christ. And he makes us new again. He forgives and he restores. This is the God we serve. The woman in the well is a lovely little story of how Jesus meets her in a place of compassion. He sees her, he knows what's gone on, and he just says, come back to me. Leave your life, your sin behind and follow me. You know, David finds forgiveness. He writes a beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. It's raw. It's pretty ugly in places. But you know, if lust is a thing for you, it's a beautiful prayer to inhabit. It's a real prayer. You know, we're called to constantly come back when we mess up. We're ready for the big D. We're ready for divorce. The next bit of the passage. You know, it's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce was possible in Jesus' day. You know, Moses kind of, I don't know, made a way, made it possible. It was possible to kind of issue a certificate of divorce. And actually one of the problems back then was it was almost too easy to file for divorce. And within all of this context, I need to point out, just recognize the kind of the gender narrative going on. You know, Jesus was very much speaking to the men in his day because they, if you like, had a slightly higher place than women. But today I think we can just, you know, overlook that slightly and think of it on an even kind of equality basis. But Jesus is very much wanting to address the inequality in that time. And back then, you know, men were ditching their wives for really no reason at all. You know, if they didn't look after the household, if they weren't good cooks, pretty much any reason under the sun, you know, men were looking to kind of dispatch and find a new wife. And Jesus wanted to call it out that this is not, not right. There's hope. Um, sorry, that's throwing me. Heckles in the front. Yeah, and actually what, what Jesus is doing in this passage yeah, we, we, we create a problem when we translate it and we make it two sections. Actually, Jesus is just carrying on this theme of lust. He's saying that lust leads to adultery and then adultery ultimately leads in divorce. And that's really what this passage is doing. And it's hard to draw too much more from this passage alone. To understand divorce, we need to go a bit further. And so I want to take us to, to Matthew 19. There's a parallel story in Mark 10. And here, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they come to him with a question. They say, when is it right to divorce a woman? And at that time, there was kind of two schools of thought. There was two like good rabbis, Rabbi Shammai, 
who kind of took the conservative position. He said it was only right to divorce a woman on grounds of unchastity, like we just read. That basically means adultery, sexual sin. And then there was Rabbi Hillel, who was slightly more liberal, who basically, a little bit like the loophole Mosaic law, said that anything goes pretty much. You know, if a woman is not pleasing, you've pretty much got grounds for divorce. And what Jesus is doing is basically bringing the law back into account. In those passages, he says, he directs us back to Genesis. And he says, actually, no, man and woman came together. They came together in kind of covenanted relationship and let no one separate what God has brought together. You know, and Jesus says, really, the only permissible reason is adultery, is sexual sin. And what Jesus is doing here is, one, he's challenging the Pharisees, because I think they were trying to catch him out, and they almost wanted him to side with Hillel, but he doesn't. He takes a pretty straight line. And he's also trying to fight for the rights of women. You know, he doesn't want them to be shamed. He doesn't want them to be chucked out with no hope. But that's not it. We don't just stop there. Scripture speaks of a different narrative again. You know, it very much speaks of the sacredness of marriage. You know, divorce is not a good thing. But it happens. It does happen. Marriage is good, and yes, we have to seek reconciliation at all costs. But sometimes divorce happens. And Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, offers, if you like, another another way of why divorce might be right. You know, at that time, um, unbelievers were deserting believers. And so we get this idea of abandonment being a way or a justification for divorce. And when I was meeting with one of our, you know, one of our beautiful, wise kind of um, members of our church, Peter Laval, he said it's helpful to think of the three A's when we think of divorce and possible justification. We have adultery, and then we have abandonment, this, this argument that Paul was kind of expanding. And then I think it's fair to say we also have abuse. You know, we go back to the idea that marriage is based on a covenant. You know, it's where both parties agree to honour, to love, and to serve, and to cherish one another. Abuse completely breaks that promise. It breaks that covenant relationship. You know, physical and emotional abuse is not okay. It raises all kinds of concerns. It is not okay, and it needs to be addressed in the right way, with the right kind of pastoral and professional support. You know, so R.T. Kendall says, you know, it's pretty, there's a pretty strong argument to say that just like Paul developed a compassionate response, you know, so too we could expand this narrative and develop a compassionate response to say that actually abuse could well be a justification for divorce as well. So we have the three, the three A's. And then I want to finish by just saying, you know, that restoration is possible. It's the same as we run the Restored Lives course, an amazing course run by Ken and others who just work with those going through separation, going through divorce, for which it's a very painful, very real experience. And we as a church are called to offer hope and love. And then remarriage. I don't have time to redo this justice. 
other, to, other than to say remarriage is possible. And again, it needs to be worked through in the right pastoral and professional kind of channels. But generally where divorce is permissible, remarriage is also permissible. But that's all I'm going to say on that one. I think tonight I've already covered potentially some touchy subjects. You may be inhabiting some of that space. I'd encourage you, you know, to seek out the right kind of pastoral support if that is you. You know, maybe you're dealing with, with an issue of lust. Seek prayer support. Seek someone who you can be accountable to to deal with that. I'm conscious of time. I'm going to finish with one story. Okay, I want to, I want to take us to John 8. And um, Jesus is teaching outside the temple courts. And he's sitting on the steps. And he's just teaching to a small group. And then some Pharisees come. And they come and they chuck a woman down in front of Jesus. There's a sense of real kind of venom in the air. This poor woman looks bedraggled and she's on a heap on the floor. There's hatred in their eyes. There's blood in their hearts. You know, they know that the punishment for adultery is death. And they hurl her down. They say, here is an adulterer, Jesus. What would you have us do with her? Jesus can sense the hostility in the air. He can sense the Pharisees are trying to trap him. He doesn't really give them the airtime that they warrant. He just writes in the sand in front of him. He pauses, he thinks. He looks up and he says, whoever has not sinned, be my guest. Cast the first stone. There's a pause. There's a kind of frustrated silence. And then one by one, they start to slip away. Jesus has got them. We all come carrying some form of sin. And Jesus looks at the woman who's surprised that she's not being condemned. And Jesus says to her, Woman, who has condemned you? She looks around. She says, no one, sir. No one has condemned me. And then in her broken, fallen, bedraggled state, Jesus rises. He walks towards her. He picks her up. He lifts up her chin because she can barely look him in the face. Such is the shame and the guilt. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. He meets her from a place of love, from a place of compassion. Neither do I condemn you. And he says, go. Leave your life of sin. Go. Have a fresh start. You know, whoever believes in Jesus, you know, Paul says there is no condemnation. We freely come to him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you broke into this world. I thank you that you came to reveal another way, another agenda. You came to reveal a God that is full of love, grace, and mercy, who fights for justice. He wants to see the oppressed free. I 
thank you that you showed us what it is to do life. And I thank you that you gave, you gave everything so that we could have a second, a third, a fourth, and many more chances. I thank you that your grace is sufficient. Lord, as we leave this week, as we go from here, may you fill us with your love. May you fill us with your spirit. May you help us to know that we are your children, sons and daughters of the risen Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.